You're listening to Gaslights, a podcast about everything that captures your imagination. Welcome to Gaslights. My name is Gary. If you have watched television at any point over the last 40 years, you'll want to stay tuned. My guest today is actor, comedian, writer, artist, producer, director, and all-around renaissance man, Larry Hankin. In a career that has taken him through just about every entertainment medium available, he has appeared in some of the most memorable films and TV shows, and we're going to try to get into some of that work right now. Larry, uh, thanks for being here today. I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having me. So this may throw you for a loop. I'd actually like to start off with Solly's Diner. Okay, cool. A short you wrote, directed, and starred in, uh, which earned you an, an Academy Award nomination. Now, for me, the best way I can describe it is that it's very New York. It has that unmistakable late 70s, early 80s New York look and feel. So how would you describe the premise and uh, where did the idea come from? Well, we shot in L.A., so that's very interesting. <laughs> but, I mean, it is very New York. I'm, I'm from New York, and everybody else in it is in, from New York. Uh, I, I guess I had that uh, New York sensibility. Um, I remember somebody said to me around that time, they visited from New York, and uh, I, I guess I hadn't seen them in like two or three years, and the first thing they said to me was, you've lost your New York cool, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, Sally's Diner came out of that. Um, so what was the question now? I, I had to get that out of the way, that it, that it was shot in L.A. So how would you describe the, the premise to someone who hasn't seen it, and where did you get the idea? Oh, Chaplin. I mean, just <laughs> I stole it. I mean, uh, it, I... I the, the guy was homeless, Chaplin, you know, the little tramp. The tramp, I mean, sure. And, and nowadays, that's called homeless. Nowadays, it's called, it's not even called homeless. It's, um, what, what is it called now? Without a home. Those who are, um, yeah, you, you can't even call them homeless anymore. And I was homeless for about a year, so I have perfect right to talk this way. I lived in my car for a year. Mm. Uh, and that's so that's where the experience came from. So I, I said, well, Charlie Chaplin, okay, homeless. I'll get a homeless guy. I was about 30, I guess, or between 25 and 30, 28, maybe. I don't know. So uh, homeless, okay. And um, how to describe it? Well, uh, it's uh, a clown uh, saving the day. I mean, that, that's basically what Chaplin did. You know, he came in and he beat up big guys and he saved the girl. He, he, he said, give me a park, a cop and a girl, and I'll give you a film short. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and so that's what I followed. Instead of a park, I got a, a diner. Uh, but there, there was a, a girl, no, no, no cop. I couldn't, I couldn't get a cop in time. Uh, but that's really all it is. It's um, the the, uh, the the downtrodden wins, you know, the 
the loser wins. Right. Uh, and, and that's all. He just, you know, was trying to get a meal and he got a meal out of it. He, he saved the diner from being robbed and he got a meal out of it. That's the premise. I think what was funny to me is that, you know, there's this attempted robbery and then a second attempted robbery on top of it. And then the waitress goes back to waiting as if nothing happened. Well, okay. That, that, that too. I mean, that, that's what happened. Uh, but I, with, with Chaplin, he also, he clued me in on everything. I mean, if you, if you read any of his writing or what he talked about, um, he said that uh, he has uh, the, the the less you have, and he was talking about his his tramp. He said the less you have, the higher your moral ground. Mm. So if you have nothing, you can steal food. That's a given, man. I mean, well, you can't keep somebody from eating and starving to death, right? So if I have to, if I have to, if I have no food and I, I, I go into a grocery store and I, and I steal a candy bar, um, yeah, that's against the law and I can be ar arrested for it. But if I get away with it, like, yeah, I don't get caught. Um, I, I think the moral high ground is, hey man, the guy is starving. Yeah. So, okay, he got away with it. We forgive him. You know, he didn't get caught. If he gets caught, he, he, hey, look, the law is the law. Right. So that that's how I constructed that. He had nothing. He was hungry. He, he didn't want to steal any money. He wanted to, he was trying to get food. That was all he was trying to do. And at the end, he got food. He got it. He did. That's all. And in and in doing that, he was a hero. He he actually say you know saved uh, the place from being robbed. So and then put put the gun in the oven too. Well, that, that's just the cleverness of Chaplin. That that is, in other words, Chaplin was. Um, I guess he was like a, a montagist or a collagist. In that once he once he created a world that was normal, either a poor normal world or a rich normal world, but a usual world that you know you don't question. Yeah, that 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 looks real. That, that's cool. And then he sets up uh, antagonist and a protagonist. You know, a bad guy and a good guy. And then what he does is, which is very clever, he only uses that which is in the reality he has set up to win. You know, he doesn't bring in anything. He doesn't bring in troops. He doesn't bring in the cavalry. He doesn't bring in a cop. He doesn't bring in ammunition. He doesn't bring in anything from outside. He just uses what is there before he got there. The construction of that is that he makes sure that the world he sets up is ready for this bereft person to come in and use what's there. In other words, he, but you don't know that. You say, hey, yeah, that's a normal place. You know, there's nothing that he could save himself with. And then he cleverly puts stuff together 
Well, and that's what makes him one of the comedy masters. Right. Uh, uh, genius, I would say. <laughs> but, you know, comedy master is fine with me, too. Uh, because he kept it up. I mean, like, he didn't just do a one-off and get an Academy Award like I did. You know, he kept boom, 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 week after week. He did, you know, so, I mean, there's a, a big difference. But but I did, he, he was the guy who, who gave me the idea. So comedy seems to have been one of your first ambitions. You know, if somebody wants to be a stage actor, they might say, oh, I saw... Laurence Olivier do Shakespeare and that made me want to do stage so and you may have already answered this question but was there a comedian who made you sit up and say I need to do that Milton Berle really Milton Berle uh, well because I was a child man I was a little kid so the only comedian there was in the world you know was Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton that, that's what I kind of if I could choose something, because back in the day, they had little Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton, um, little eight millimeter reels, mm -hmm. which you could buy in a uh, in a grocery store or, or, or a, a, a drugstore. You get these, you know, uh, it was a little uh, cassette, little little box, little box about that big, and then it was a uh, eight reel, and it was ten minutes. And uh, what what you did was you either got a uh, um, a projector, you know, a little old-fashioned projector, and you put that up, and you screened it on the wall, and I would watch those, you know, when I was about uh, four, five, six, seven, eight, and then w when television started to get, uh, you know, uh, programming, um, Milton Berle was the first comedian who was famous. Yeah, he was like the Charlie Chaplin, not not as great, but. But he was the only co comedian, so he was the. So I watched Milton Berle when when television. So I oh, black and white television. He he was funny, and then so those are the the, the basis of it. My, my childhood, you know, and that's just buried in there. That's that's way deep down. It just c comes up subconsciously. I don't even think about that stuff, unless somebody asks me a question about it. Uh, but but then the. The thing that turned me consciously onto it was, and I didn't even know it, but I would start collecting comic uh, books, not comic books, comedy magazines. Uh, one was 1,000 Jokes, the magazine called 1,000 Jokes, and I bought them every, uh, came out every month, bought, and I, I didn't have a pres uh, prescription, I didn't have a <laughs> subscription right? I, I, I didn't have a subscription and um so i, I bought it every month and I, I i had a photographic memory for jokes i mean i didn't ask for it uh, I, I just could do it so i became very funny as the joke guy you know hey larry tell us a joke and i would tell him a joke you know and i would buy playboy magazine when that came out Mm -hmm. Not for the centerfold, which was the second choice. The first choice <laughs> was I was buying it because they had a, a comedy page. They had a page of jokes. Okay. You know, generally sexual oriented kind of jokes, you know, to the, to the viewer, to, to the buyer of the magazine. And, and then I would turn to the centerfold. But, <laughs> but mainly uh, it was the joke. So anything that had Reader's Digest, I, I read 
profusely hunted through Reader's Digest for all the jokes. They, they were sporadic. New, the New Yorker magazine, the cartoons. I would just go through, I wouldn't read them. Every once in a while I'd read a, you know, an article or something like that. And it was very good writing. But what I was there for was the cartoons. Uh, and then uh, in my uh, high school junior and senior year, I won Funniest in my class mm -hmm. junior, as a junior and a senior. And that was kind of like, uh, and, and all, so I was a funny guy. I mean, I was just a funny guy I, I didn't ask to be that but i found it was a good way to make friends you know and be the center of attention for a couple of seconds until i got to the punchline and, and um we even ran contests like a guy named steve joseph I, i wonder where steve is now but me and steve would have joke contests now the, the i keep on saying jokes and comedy i that's not what i do anymore I mean, that just was the only thing that I had. And then I saw Lenny Bruce mm. and uh, that ended the joke business. <laughs> and then I started telling stories and I found out what I really was, because I'm a storyteller. I tell funny stories. That's different than jokes. I don't know how to tell jokes. I mean, when I was reading them and, and gathering them, because there was no, nothing else to, to make me laugh, or make other people's laugh. So I, me I, I memorized them. I didn't try to memorize them. I just did. I read them and that was it. And then I'd go out and tell them. But when I saw Lenny Bruce, and when I was in, that's when I graduated college. I was pretty funny in college too. I, I played in uh, all the, uh, a lot of comedy roles in the drama department. Although I was in industrial design department. Um, but I, I would hang out at the drama department and I would get into these, um, and I'd get comedy roles that were written, you know. Um, I can't remember all the plays, but there a lot of, some of them were original, some of them were Ionesco plays and stuff. So that's how I kind of, yeah, you know, it was just something that I could do. Uh, unfortunately, when it came to me making a living, I went to make a living I didn't want to do anything but make people laugh so I got a degree in industrial design but I went to Greenwich Village with my friend uh, Carl Gottlieb who wrote all the Jaws movies mm -hmm. we, we were in college together he wanted to be a writer I, I didn't want to do anything really but make people laugh so I asked him where he was going I didn't want to go to Detroit and design cars so I went to Greenwich Village and was uh, sweeping up bars from from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. after last call to the when the chef came in, it was a bar and grill. And luckily, um, I was stealing food. So there's your, there's your Solly's, Solly's Diner. Diner, sure. Uh, you know, I, I couldn't pay my rent. I was starving. Well, I wasn't starving because Carl would, you know, Carl would bring food home for me. Because <laughs> he would be reviewing movies. It was really funny. He would be reviewing movies. Carl Gottlieb would be reviewing movies. And these, these small papers, I mean, nameless papers, uh, lo local neighborhood papers. But he was reviewing them with all the big, you know, Life magazine and New York Times and Post magazine and the New Yorker. So uh, they all, you know, had one showing for all the reviewers. 
and they would serve wine and uh, cold shrimp. You know those bowls of cold shrimp sure. where you dip, dip them in the sauce. Mm -hmm. So that that's what they they served at all the screenings that Carl Gottlieb went to to review movies. They served wine. You know, loosen up the reviewers, feed them, and then go in and review and get a good review. Right. So he would, uh, and they would also had uh, real napkins. This is very important. They had real napkins. I haven't seen real napkins since, I don't know, 1961, 1960. Uh, you know, real linen napkins. They, 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 you know, and so he would take a linen napkin and he would get a handful of shrimp and he would put it in a napkin and he would wrap and he would put it in his pocket. You had to wear a suit in those days, you know. Uh, everybody wore suits. Even Lenny Bruce wore suits. And um, he would bring it home and that would be my meal. So I was really, I mean, I'm telling you, I was starving. Uh, I paid, I, you know, I could make enough to pay half the rent most of the time by, by sweeping up in the bar. And I got tired of that. And then uh, my nights were free and Carl was reviewing movies and writing and going out on dates. He had money, he had a job. So uh, I... Uh, hung around the coffee houses. We were in Greenwich Village. We lived on Carmine Street, right around the corner from the village, block away from all the coffee houses. About, it must have been about 20 coffee houses in a, in a five block area. It's amazing. Sure. And uh, so I would just go to coffee houses until 2 a.m. when I had to go to work. I didn't want to hang around the bar, but I could, you know, sit in open mic nights. And sit and watch funny people and to me they weren't funny you know and i, I, I finally i said i can do that mm -hmm. you know you get three minutes and uh, the great thing about the coffee houses was that uh, the open mic nights sunday monday tuesday and wednesday maybe a thursday night because the, the big nights were saturday friday and saturday night for the coffee houses you know that's when you had your uh, the name outside you know Dave Van Ronk tonight, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so uh, I got up and started doing it. I was really awful. Uh, the, the first lesson you learn, or uh, first lesson I had to learn, was making your friends laugh is not like making paying customers laugh. <laughs> right, I'm, I'm sure it's not. Totally different animal. So, but... In, in the open mic nights, the audiences understood that. So there, you know, cause you get three minutes and th this is open mic nights. They understood that. And you can sit there, you know, for maybe a cup of coffee or two for the whole night and just watch 15 or 20 acts. Some would be good, some would be awful, some would be okay. But it was, you know, entertainment, you know, it's better than sitting at home watching television. So- right. But they also came with something that no other audiences ever came with. This is open mic night audiences. They came with pre-patience, pre-developed patience, because they were there to see their friend get up. So they weren't going to boo or laugh or not laugh. Well, they weren't going to boo or hiss anybody because then their friend would get up and their friend would get booed or hissed. Right. So everybody just kept quiet and waited until you got through your three minutes. As bad as it was, they just sat there and drank their coffee or had a little private conversation. 
until their friend came up. So it, they were very forgiving. They all understood the rules and nobody said the rules. They would just came in and wait until your friend comes up. Don't boo, don't hiss, don't make a big deal about anything. So that, that, so that was, and that kind of started the whole thing off. So you, you got the three or four declinations of humor until I finally got to. And then while I was in doing the open mic nights and maybe introducing a, uh, you know, a headliner in a coffee house on a Friday or a Saturday night when I was starting to get good, Lenny Bruce played down the block at Basin, at, uh, uh, it wasn't Basin Street West, uh, Basin Street East. Can't remember, but it was a, a jazz club, um, a jazz club. And Lenny Bruce was playing there and somebody said, go see him. And I did, and I changed my life. Well, it didn't change my life. Changed, changed my, my, my comedy. I said, well, he's telling stories. He's not telling jokes at all. Telling what he what he did, you know, and who, who he saw, and you know, and his girlfriend and his mom, and so you know, and he was talking street in a jazz club, a white guy in a suit with short yeah. hair, right? And, and that, that was weird, a, a white guy in a jazz club, you know, and the jazz. Didn't he get? A, he's arrested several times, wasn't he? Oh, for drugs. I mean, yeah, it was ridiculous, and that's what started me. I was getting arrested too. You know, I mean, that comes with the territory. George Carlin, Richie Pryor. We we all were getting arrested at the same time. I just wasn't famous. I was out on the road, but Carlin, you know, was starting to get you know full of himself and drugs and cocaine. Uh, so yeah, and and anger. And so George Carlin just rode that, you know, hard, you know, uh, and uh, became famous for it, you know, seven dirty words. Yeah, sure. Um, but we all were, were coming from the same spot, and that was, uh, you know, Mom's Mayleaf, uh, Red Fox, and Lenny Bruce. Oh, I love Red Fox. Yeah, well, they, they were talking street, and then Lenny Bruce came along and did the same thing and was busted, you know, and started doing drugs. I think it, it worked this way. Everybody nowadays, you know, does marijuana and a, and a little bit of cocaine. I mean... Cocaine has taken over Britain. I mean, the entire country is just on cocaine. There's <laughs> nobody who's not on cocaine. Uh, but back then, you you got busted for that. And here you get busted for cocaine. But marijuana is, you know, starting to get legal and blah, blah, blah. But in those days, no, you couldn't even say marijuana on the stage. You would be a cop. Hey, you know, boom, they would pull you up the stage. But they were talking street, you know, saying shit and fucking piss and blah, blah, blah. And uh, now you can do, I mean, as John Stewart said the other night, uh, piss, shit, fuck, and all those other words were, you know, the names of sitcoms now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, but back then, so I think my, my takeaway was that the cops were driving Lenny to harder and harder drugs just to forget what the fuck he was going to go through once he got up on the stage. Wow. Uh, and, and I believe that that's true. I, I, I knew Lenny for a, a, just a moment because when we were, I played in the committee, you know, which was a offshoot of Second City. I was in Second City and the committee which you said, yeah, I've been in every kind of show business. Uh, 
but um, Lenny would come to the committee when he played Basin Street West in San Francisco. He would come to see the committee and hang out with us. So we got to know each other, you know, and, and the rest of the group. Right. And uh, so I would hang out with him and we would go for walks and talk and stuff like that. And he was just an, an ordinary guy. I mean, once he came off the stage, he was just, you know, a guy named Lenny. Right. He was, he had no, uh, so anyway, um, he, uh, I would go see his show on my off night at the committee and I would just fall down laughing. I mean, and he, and he, but it, w what he was cursing was not, he was saying, well, he wasn't cursing. He was telling you something, you know, he said, blah, 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 blah. So I didn't like what he said, you know? So I said, well, fuck that. I just went over there and I, I talked to him. Right. So now he did say fuck, but it wasn't like a different context. It was, yeah, it was just talk. It was discussion talk, fuck, you know? Right. Anyway, the cops were just messing with him horribly. I mean, I saw him four different times at uh, different nightclubs. So I, you know, up close. And he was just getting more, <laughs> the, the right way, more drug and more drug. Not drug induced, more angry, more, 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 more weight on his shoulder. It was just getting a heavier and heavier load for him to carry. But he wouldn't shut up. He wouldn't stop doing what he was doing. The same thing with um, uh, George Carlin. George Carlin had four heart attacks, man. You got to really want to make people laugh to get four heart attacks. That's crazy. Uh, it's crazy, but it, it, it worked for George Carlin. He was doing cocaine and getting heart attacks over it. Mm. But, he re, but he refused to give in to the, quote, law. No, I'm telling something that's bigger than the curse words you're hearing. Right. And, and Lenny had to sit in court and listen to cops do his routine. Mm. You know, and, and, and lean on every time, you know, a curse word came out, you know, like he'd say, oh, I didn't want to do that. So fuck you. I'm going to go over there. Whoa. So they emphasized that. Yeah. I mean, they would just use the words, n not the story. I mean, it's a cop telling, doing comedy. Right. I mean, it was just so. Anyway, so th that's. Um, all, all this was being input and, and Richie Pryor, man. Lenny Bruce was Richie Pryor before Richie Pryor. And just Richie just took it to another level. So the, these are all the things that were coming at me. But, you know, I, I just wanted to work. I wanted to pay rent. That, that's all I wanted to do. Just pay my rent and, and car payments and food. That was it, man. And, and, and if you just leave me alone, I'd be happy with that. But no, I did a tour with the Loving Spoonful and man, 20 cops pulled me off the stage. Wow. 20 cops for a comedian that was opening for the Loving Spoonful in Washington, in Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. She, I mean, you know, and so I started to understand I didn't do any drugs. I didn't do any drugs until years later. I mean, I, I had been in comedy for, well, I had been uh, 
Greenwich Village. Uh, I, I went on the road, did you know, did the road thing with comedy, opening for big acts, you know, Miles Davis, uh, Love, uh, Love and Spoonful, wow. uh, uh, Kingston Trio, Ian and Sylvia, uh, just, you know, big acts. Uh, I did the Playboy circuit, uh, so big acts, but it was, I could understand and I started to think. I, without, without drugs, I, I didn't do any drugs. I didn't start until very late in life. Uh, you know, marijuana and stuff, you know, and a little cocaine, a little. Yeah, I tasted all of them, and it just wasn't for me. But as I was doing and getting these cops coming at me, pulling me off the stage, I, uh, I understood. I said, the cops, I was saying this to myself. I said it to a few friends, but I was saying it to myself. These cops are driving me to drugs. I'm, I'm going to do drugs because of this. I can't. It was the tension and the, the pressure. Right. You knew what you, uh, uh, okay. I and mean, sometimes you would just walk on the stage. You see a cop standing there waiting for you to go on stage. He's in the back. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that kind of pressure. Oh, man. So I'm going to get through half of my act and then they're going to pull me off the stage. I mean, that's. Come on, man. I'm just trying to make a living here. Uh, so I was thinking, all right, fine. You're driving me to drugs. I understand Lenny fine. You know, I understand George. I understand Richie. I understand all of them and all the, and all the dancers and all the singers and all the other. I mean, the pressure is unbelievable. I mean, it makes you wonder, too, if that's, you know, ultimately what happened to Lenny, if it was because of that. Well, I, I think so. There's no reason that somebody should, you know, be that um, suicidal. I mean, if you do enough heroin, man, you're going to die. It's it's just that simple. Right. I mean, it's it, it, there's, there's no discussion. <laughs> there's no defense. Oh, I take heroin because uh, it makes me funnier. No, it doesn't. <laughs> but what what George Carlin would say was, and he'd do it in the privacy of when he would write. George Carlin, this is amazing. I don't know if you saw this. I, I, I was watching a documentary on him. But George Carlin, like, wrote like any other person in a cubbyhole in a in a job you hate. He went to the office, you know, either in his house or he had an office, and he would write for eight hours, you know. We'd take a, an hour for lunch, you know, and he'd come back and he'd write. Like it was a job. Like it was a job, exactly. You know, and then he would go on the road and he would do all this stuff. He would test it out, you know. But he would, and all, and I started to say, so did Jerry Seinfeld. So did all of them. They put in their time. So for to have a cop, you know, you're doing your work, your job, your writing. It's it's not all jokes on the stage. You got to put in a lot of time writing that stuff. But George Carlin would say, you know, he he would write, he would write, and then he would say, "What was the uh, uh, well?" I, I, I use a different word. I can't remember the word that he used. But he would say he would write, and then uh, he, he would write. You know, maybe he would invite a friend into the office, and they would throw stuff back and forth. You know, spitball some idea, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then he would get it all written and then he'd say, okay, leave me alone. He'd say, and now comes uh, tweak time. I, now, he didn't say the word tweak, but what he meant was, you know, to edit it down into, you know, to, to, to rewrite it so you get the jokes out. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and that's when he would get high. So he, in other words, he, he, you know, maybe smoked marijuana or something like that to, to do the first layer. But then the second layer would be the hardcore stuff. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Just to get the real. But I mean, if, if you listen to his sets, you know, when he got on the stage, fucking brilliant stuff. He was. George Carlin was brilliant. Yeah. I mean, amazingly so. Not only that, but I was watching them last night, uh, you know, tape. And, um, he was doing his, uh, he, he was doing the, um, not the, the seven dirty words, but the words that were used to describe the seven dirty words. That was another routine, just the words to describe, you know, like risque, blue, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, he had a ton of them. I mean, it, it was like, he just, <laughs> for about 10 minutes he's a and and and, 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 and. but the, the key to, to carlin was not only was that amazing that he had memorized and researched all the words used to describe dirty words but he would make each word that he came up with funny by facial expressions or the way that he said it mm -hmm. so he topped what he was doing was he was topping himself would not only say a funny thing, but he would say it funnily. <laughs> I mean, you know, like all the other comedians would just say funny things. Mm -hmm. George Carlin said funny things funnily. <laughs> too. Right. So, I mean, you know, the guy was amazing. As all the great ones were, Moms Mabley was amazing, you know, what? Uh, you know, on, on the, what is it? The, the Chitlin circuit. Chit, chit, Chitlin circuit. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that, that's all the inputs that came into <laughs> making Solly's diner. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Tied up in a bow. Um, yeah. this is probably going to, I mean, it might be a little obscure, but I know you, you had a small appearance in the, uh, 1968 film, yours, mine and ours. And um, uh, yeah, I'm really interested to know if you had any interaction off camera with Lucille Ball. Yes, but it's not the yes you want. <laughs> oh, okay, <laughs> um, it was very short. Well, I I, I met her twice and two years apart, uh, where I was put into you know uh, very near her to be with her. One was on a baseball team. We were on a baseball team together, me and me and Lucy. And uh, the other one was uh, yours, mine, and ours. I was the bagger. It, 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 basically, they were going to shoot yours, mine, and ours in San Francisco. So that that's how I got to be in it, because they came to the committee, the casting people of the movie, came to the committee and cast us all. Uh, they came to the director. I guess they saw the show. Uh, and uh, the casting people saw the show, went to the director and said, we'd like to cast the entire cast of the committee in different roles. They're very funny people, you know, so we just sprinkle them throughout the movie. So uh, no, none of us had any big parts. We, we just like a line or two here or there just to 
perk up a scene, maybe, you know, which was a good idea, you know, good idea, the movie people. And I was a bagger uh, when they were checking out at a, a supermarket. Right, her and Henry Fonda. Henry Fonda and Lucille Ball were checking out their stuff at a checkout counter, and I was the bagger, you know, and I think my line was uh, paper or plastic. That was my line. And so that that was all I was doing. You know, they were talking to the guy on the cash register, blah, 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 and it had a lot of things. And then, and then you know, and the joke was that they bought a lot of stuff because they had a lot of children. That was the whole premise of the movie. Uh, so they bought it. So I was bagging a lot of stuff. Okay, I did. I said paper or plastic. They said whatever they said, paper, plastic. I don't know. Bagging it. And, that, and, that, and that was the only thing on camera. Uh, so they did it like two or three times. And then at one point, and each time, this is kind of interesting, which was the setup. When they said cut, uh, Lucille Ball and Henry Fonda had two ways of reacting to the word cut. Henry Fonda, as soon as he had directed, said cut, Henry Fonda just disappeared to the wall. He didn't want to be in anybody's way. He didn't want to be spoken to. He didn't want to be bothered. And he didn't want to bother anybody. Because I guess he was Henry Fonda and people bothered him all the time. So he would just go to the nearest dark corner or where he was totally out of the way. He didn't even sit in his chair that said Henry Fonda on it. He stood away. Okay. And Lucille Ball did the exact opposite. When the director said cut, she stood up, moved about, oh, I'd say 10 feet from her mark in the set. And she just stood there and waited. And a gaggle of women, um, I guess, um, what you uh, makeup people, uh, would gather around her, females. I, I, there was a, a minimum of, I, I guess four, minimum of four, but I think maybe five. Okay, and one, uh, and they were they were kind of shorter than her. For yeah, I mean, no reason. It just happened that way. But I noticed that that they were just shorter because uh, I could see her face. That that was why. So one would work on her hair. Now she was perfect. In other words, you know, her lips were perfect, and her eyes were perfect, and her makeup was perfect, and her hair was perfect, and everything was perfect about her. She was like a diva, and but it didn't matter if if they did the scene three times, and, and the director yelled "cut" three times. She would stand ten feet away. They would gather around, and they would work on her hair and her lips. One would work on her lips, just her lips, with a little brush. One would work on her eyes, and one would work on a costume. And and they would just they would just touch her because there's nothing to do, man. I mean, she was perfect. So they would just, you know, ridiculous. <laughs> okay, so that's what was going on when they said cut. On about the, the the second, I guess the second time, second time they said cut for that scene where I was begging. Second time she's and they're, I said the Jewish word pachkaing with her, which means just fooling around. Mm. You know. boop, 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 boop. But she would just stand there and, and just stare off, you know, because that's I could see her. 
but I would get I get away. But I was so fascinated that I would get about like 20, 30 feet away from her, you know, and just and I would just stand there and watch this. That she would put up with this. That they, the 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 women, would put up with this sham, <laughs> this sham of affixing Lucille Ball's face and costume. And at one and one time she said. And she pointed. She, you know, raised up a little over their heads, and she pointed to me, and she said,、uh, "You, would you please come here, young man?" Yeah, she called me young man. Young man, would you please come here?、Uh, not, not very nicely, kind of like neuter. Come here. So, I go, what does she want? You know. So I walked over to him and I said, "Yeah," and they immediately stopped. But they froze. The, the the three women around are like,、oh, "What's going on? Well, this is new." <laughs>、uh, and I, the image I have—I don't know if this is true—but the image I have is, you know, if they were, pop, you know, plumping her hair or just touching her face, they moved their hand about a foot away from her face, but froze in that position until she was finished, you know, with me. They were just, "Whoop!、Well, she's talking. Let's just stop right where we are." And they just froze. <laughs> and I just walked over, and while they were frozen, she said, "Young man, you're a very good actor, but if you get in my light once more, you're not going to be here tomorrow." Wow. And I said, "Oh, okay." And then I just thank you. And then she, you know, pushed, you know, fluffed me away, or you know, this little finger movement.、Uh, and so I walked away. Okay. So there. So the rest of the time, I just try to stay out of her light. That was the entire my my entire intent of my character: stay out of Lucille Ball's light.、Uh, so that was my first encounter. That was the only encounter I had with her, but it was memorable. It stays with me to this day. <laughs> this diva. I mean, they, she's the the queen diva of all divas. She was. But when she was on camera and doing her funny stuff, you know, like the Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, you know, I love Lucy stuff. No, she was amazing. I mean, she was as good as Pryor or Lenny or Moms Mabley. I mean, she was a wonder of a female comedian. She, you know, so I don't. There's her interaction with me, and there's her talent. <laughs> Nothing to do with one another. Uh, so uh, the next time I saw her was、uh, the committee was playing Broadway, so we were on Broadway. So yeah, I did all the stations of the show business cross. I was on every kind of stage and movie you could imagine. So、uh, when we were on Broadway, they, there's a there's a Broadway Actors League or a Broadway Show League, Broadway Show League. So any Broadway show that was、uh, that was on Broadway in the year in one year are invited to they have a baseball game once a year in the summer in Central Park and、uh, the teams are picked and it's a league and、um, the the teams are picked from the actors in the shows that played during the year so. Uh, and you're assigned to teams. You, you you can't just be on the committee team or the this team or the that team. They assign you, so they kind of mix up all the actors. And I was assigned to the same team that Lucille Ball was on.、Uh, I guess she had played Broadway during the year. So we were on the team, and I remember 
there's two things I remember about her. One was, and it was, you know, it was in the, during the summer, bright, sunny day, green, you know, in the grass and we're in the Central Park. And all I did was try to keep out of her sunlight. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to put a shadow on her. That's why I just, I was on the team, but I always stayed down son of her. She had PTSD. Yeah, right. I mean, she did that. She did that to me. But but the other thing was that she came to play, and and so this is where her her talent comes in. I mean, her her ferocity. I mean, she came to play baseball. She wasn't kidding around. She wanted to win. I mean, and she had played baseball before. She was not a beginner. She, she was, she, when she got up to bat, I, I'll never forget this, man. She, you know, was swinging that bat and, you know, hitting the, the home plate with the tip of the bat and, you know, saying, you know, come on in, pitch it in here, you fucking blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and she would curse at the pitcher like a sailor, man. I mean, she was, then when she, when she hit the ball, she was going for the fences. You know, she would hit a line drive right through, you know, the hole in left field, man. I mean, I, I was, you know, you're just, wow, man. No wonder she's so funny. You know, I mean, she's the the energy. Yeah. She she, she wanted to win. You know, I wanted to run. I was glad I was on her team, you know. So those are my two Lucille Ball stories. So even before getting on the set with her on the film, was there any part of you that was maybe a little bit intimidated? I mean, when you were a teenager, this was she would have been a megastar on television. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, no. By the time I saw her the first time, I was in the committee, and we were a big hit in San Francisco. So she didn't scare me. I mean, you know, you know I mean, uh, I, I was a little awestruck being on the uh, on the set with her, you know, bagging her. Uh, you know, bags and stuff and food. Uh, so there was a little, a little awe, but I was m more curious. I, in other words, the amount of awe that you would expect, I, I poured into curiosity. I, I, I mean, there was Henry Fonda and Lucille Ball, and and you know, how many people get a chance to watch them act? Right, right. You know, so uh, I, there was, uh, and awe would have been off-putting. It would have been a, a wall between me and, and their talent. But so I, I was Im immensely curious as to, you know, how, how do these people do their job on camera? So that that carried me through and through everything. Because we were famous in San Francisco and this was our town, you know, the committee. So, uh, you know, and I had fans there. You had home field advantage. So yeah, so it was yeah exactly it was home field. So I, I, I you know I I'm I'm not my my awe of famous people takes the 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 form of just I get very quiet. I've sat next to really famous people. I've been in the room with famous people who I really you know watching on television or in the movies or as a politician or whatever, you know, you go, wow, man, you know, he's, he's saying cool things on the blah, 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 or wow, I wish I could be an actor like that. But once I get next to him, I just shut the F up. You know, I, I just get real quiet. I have no questions. 
I mean, my mind goes blank, really. I, I, I don't, you know, generally people go, oh, hey, why did you, or can I ask you? Well, like you're asking me questions now. You know, you're asking me questions. Like I'm famous. Like, I don't think I'm famous. I don't follow me. I, you know, I, I do laundry. I wash dishes. I take out the garbage, you know. Uh, it's all perspective. Yeah, it's all perspective. So I'm awestruck when I see them doing their thing. But once I get close to them, uh, I, my mind goes blank. I, I don't even have a question. I don't have anything to ask them. Or, you know, why did you do that? Or how? what was it like? I, I just... Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and then after, you know, the next day, I go, why didn't I... I could have, you know... Now... Uh, the only person I really got involved with on that kind of awestruck thing was Brian, uh, Brian, uh, you know, uh, um, Breaking Bad. Brian Cranston. Brian Cranston. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I spoke to him, you know, he, because he spoke to me. I mean, you know, he he came over and said, hey, you know, I was... That was pretty cool. Or, uh, you know, you do any writing? I mean, he asked me a question, something, I don't know, some some question. Well, just to involve uh, a conversation, an ordinary, you know, not about show business at all. You know, just, so while I was talking to him and, you know, just carrying on a conversation, I said, oh, by the way, you know, I, I, I wrote this uh, thing. I was writing a screenplay at the time, you know, my off hours. Um, and I said, I'm, I said, you know, what are you doing in your spare time or something? I said, well, I, I write. Oh, really? What are you writing? I was writing a screenplay, you know. Oh, really? What's it, what's it about? Uh, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's about this guy. Um, uh, oh, that's interesting. I, oh, really? Uh, well, I mean, you could read it. I said to him, uh, you know, just give me some feedback. Yeah, sure. You know, just, uh, and he gave me his uh, address of the, uh, his, uh, his uh, secretary. He said, "You know, call my secretary. Okay, here's her number, and she'll give you the email address, and she'll give it to me. You know, so if you send it to anybody else, it'll never get to me. So just give it to her." I said, "Okay." And then uh, I sent it to him, and I didn't hear anything from him. I mean, the, sh the shoot was over by the time I spent I sent it to him, and you know, giving him time to read it and everything. About two, three months later, I had just even dismissed it. I figured, well, you know, he read it, didn't like it. I get a call from him, you know. He called me at home. I don't even know how he, could, he got my number. I, I guess, you know, he can, you know, hey, give me Larry Hankins' number at the production company, you know. And he said, hey, I read your book and it's, a, you know, a screenplay, it's really cool. And then he gave me notes, but he would talk to me for a half an hour. Wow. You know, about, uh, you know, hey, why don't you cut this out and put that there? And you got too many characters here, so just cut out some characters and it's a pretty good story, so, you know. Good luck. That, that's great. Yeah, I mean, so so that was kind of cool. So when you get through the bullshit and the awe and the curiosity and the talent, uh, the good ones, the great ones, are really people. Yeah, they're they're. It's amazing, you know. Except for Lucille Ball, I'm sure she's a diva twenty four seven. I'm sure. As is, even Beyonce, I think, you know, gets off the, 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 the off the clock the, for a while. I don't think. Yeah. And then she becomes real for a while. But Lucia Ball, I doubt it. Uh, I mean, the, the amount of makeup she had on, 
was just enough to be a shield <laughs> from any kind of real communication. I mean, how can you talk to somebody with, you know, that much pancake makeup on? It's just. So I, I want to jump ahead just a bit um, sure. to escape from Alcatraz. Yeah. And aside from working with Clint Eastwood, mm -hmm. which I'd love to hear about, was there any preparation or research that you and the other cast members went through in terms of learning about the actual men involved? Wow, that is a great question because it, it did occur to all of us about that very same thing. And I solved it in a very cool way, I, I believe. Um, I didn't do any research at, at all. I didn't care because I didn't think my part was big enough uh, to warrant it. And it wasn't in the beginning. I only had uh, five or six lines um, and I was only in two or three scenes the most. Uh, and I didn't audition. And the audition, the, the, I mean, if you talk to the director, you would count that as an audition. But when I say audition, I, you know, I'm, talk, I'm talking about the classic audition, you know, where you memorize lines, you go in, you read in front of a, you know, a panel of, of judgmental people. Sure. And, you, you know, and you go home and wait and see if you got the part. No, that didn't... Uh, I got a I got a call from my agent, and it's a, the call that you never want. I never wanted. I never want. It's a call that says, uh, "Larry, what are you doing right now?" That you don't want to get that call because that call means, "What are you doing right now?" Means you got to go right now. There is no preparation. Drop what you're doing. Get in the effing car and get out to the valley which is 45 minutes from where you are and audition which i need preparation i have dyslexia i'm adhd i i i need i need a, at least 24 hours to get my head straight into auditioning talking whatever so when he said Get down there. That means somebody got fired. You got to get down there right away. You need a replacement. You're probably going to work tomorrow. I got dyslexia. I can't memorize lines that fast. I need time. So it's just discombobulating. It's, it's just pressure. Sure. So now I got to drop, you know, okay, where he says, get down to Warner Brothers. They're auditioning for a big tentpole movie with Clint Eastwood. There's a part in it for you. What's the part? They'll tell you when you get there. That's the curse of doom. That's, they'll tell you when you get there. So you have no idea what, what they're going to ask you to do. And they're going to give you the part and ask you to do the audition right now. So there's no preparation if they say, what are you doing right now? That, that's all the things going through my head. So I, I, I went out there, I lead-footed it out there, you know, to the, to the valley. And the, the pressure was just building, you know. I, I'm just, a, you know, like self-defeating. You know, as, as I'm driving out there in the 45 minutes, the pressure is getting worse and worse, and there's nobody putting the pressure on me but me, you know, behind the wheel. Uh, you know, so by the time I got there, I'm stressed out totally. 
And I'm thinking, you know, what's the part? Why are they doing this to me? You know, what'll I say? How can I memorize things if it's going to be a big part? So I get in there and uh, there's nobody there. So first, that's the first clue that it's somebody got fired because there's nobody else audition. It's just empty. Uh, the room. And there's just a secretary. And I go, she says, what are you here for? I don't know. I'm here for Escape from Alcatraz. What part are you here for? I don't know. They said they would tell me when I get here. Do you have any sides? No. I have a script here. And she takes out the Alcatraz script and she gives it to me. That's all I have. So I'm looking and I'm going, I can't memorize anything. I don't know what part to read. So I, this is 90 pages. You know, they said, and then the door, as, as I'm saying this to her, I got the, I got the script in my hand and I'm, I'm ex trying to explain my situation to the secretary and a door opens up and a, a, a nice lady, you know, elderly lady peeks out and she says, are you Larry Hankin? Yeah. Are you ready? <laughs> so, uh, no, I said, yeah, yeah, I'm ready. Yeah. Because. My first go-to is I'm fired. Let's get this over with. I'm not going to get the job. So that's where I went to right away. Are you ready? My mind, I'm not going to get this job. I, I'm not ready, but I'm not going to tell them that. So I'm fired. So Larry, relax and tell them you're ready. So that's what I said. So I go in and there's, it's an empty room and there's just two people. That lady who's the casting director for Warner Brothers, she's a big deal. And the director. Two, just two people and there's three chairs all pointing at one another like there's supposed to be a table there but there isn't so they're just and the director's sitting in one chair she's sitting in another chair and the director says sit down in that that chair and he says well what part do you want like oh man and now i'm really bugged i don't care i don't care about clint eastwood i i didn't even do any research on don siegel who is an amazingly great director, I learned as I'm hanging out on the set when I got the job. He's a great, venerated director. And I just totally dismissed him. I don't know who he is. I never heard, I didn't even know his name, Don Siegel. I don't, you know, okay. He's directed some of the greatest stars and made some great movies in his time, black and white movies. So he said, you know, well, Larry, what do you want to do? I said, I don't know. And I'm, I was really bugged by him. I, I, I had an attitude. I mean, I, I really was drugged. I mean, I don't know, man. I, that's kind of what I did. I, I don't know, man. Yeah. They told me they would tell me when I get here and they gave me this script. I can't read the script. So he goes, oh, okay. <laughs> he, just, <laughs> he just, you know, absorbed it. He, he didn't react at all in any way he just said oh okay uh and then he turned to her you know and the lady and he said uh what parts do we have for this guy and she, she said well there's charlie butts and there's the warden uh, not not the warden the uh uh one of the what do you call it the cops you know who guard the place guards, guards. there's there's charlie butts and and one of the guards so he says, uh, one of the guards, you want to do the guard? And he's asking me this. And I go, I don't know. And, and that's how I said it. I don't know. And he just smiled at me and he goes, okay, okay. Um, well, uh, and then, and then she butts in and she says, 
I, I got this thing memorized. It just implanted in my brain. She said, "He can't. We we uh, he can't do the guard. Uh, we cast the guard this morning already. It's not open, and I don't think he could do the job. And uh, he could do the guard anyway." So the, the the director Don Siegel says to her, right in front of me. I'm sitting there. It's like I'm not there. And he says, "Yeah, yeah." The guard has to beat up Clint. I don't think he could beat up Clint. And, he, and she says he has to beat up Clint. And Don Siegel turns to me and he says, uh, he first he said to her, "Yeah, I don't think he can beat up Clint." <laughs> and then he turns to me. I mean, there's like three, two, three feet between us all. And he turns to me and he says, uh, "Can you? You think you can beat up Clint Eastwood?" <laughs> and I go, uh, "No." And he goes. Yeah, I didn't think you could beat him up either. Yeah, so he turns to her and he goes, "Yeah, what else? What is this, Charlie Butts?" Charlie B says, "Yeah, Charlie Butts." He says, then he turns to me and he goes, "Can you do? Uh, how about Charlie Butts?" And I go, "I don't know. I don't know. I haven't read the screen. I haven't had time. They just told me. I mean, I'm just getting exasperated. I want to get out of there. I mean, I, th I thought this was like a, a no-win situation. They're making fun of me. You know, this is not an audition that I've ever been in." You know where they give you the sides when you're at home. So I said, I don't know, I don't know. And he says, Okay, okay. And he sees I have the script. So he says to her, Give me your script because she had the script. No, no, no. He had his own script because he turned. He says, Okay, I'll read with you. He says, You want to read? And I go, Okay, okay, yeah, sure, I'll read. So then he says, Turn to page ninety-eight. I turn to page ninety-eight. He says,、hey, You want some time to go outside and memorize it or read it over? Or... I said, No, no. Let's just do it now. Come on, let's just do it. So he says, All right, fine.、Uh, page ninety-eight.、Uh, okay, you're Charlie Butts. I'll just read. I think it was Clint Eastwood or some. I don't know who who he was doing. So he says, Okay. And he goes, Blah blah blah. And I go, Blah blah blah. Blah blah blah. Blah blah blah. Blah 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 blah. He said, We are just one page. That's it. He says, Okay. All right.、Um, okay,、uh, you got the job. Thank you. And I just sat there, and I stared at him.、Uh, and he goes, and there's a silence. And he goes, "You don't believe me, do you?" And I go, "No, I don't." And I, I just was really drunk, and I wanted to get out of it. He was making fun of me. I, I was being belittled. I thought, you know. So he goes, "Okay,、I'll、tell you what, Larry." You just go home, sit by the phone, see what happens. Now get out of here. <laughs> and then he like waved me away, like Lucille Ball, but he had a smile on his face. Right. Like like you know, like okay, you know, enough of this of your attitude, Larry. You know, get out of here. So I I drove home forty five minutes and I go, what the fuck was that all about? <laughs> And I get home, and ten minutes later, my agent called. He says, "Hey, Larry, you got the part." Okay, so that's the story of how I got the part, and that's why I, I didn't do any research because of, of that audition and and the way he just. So he said, "If he's going to take that kind of attitude towards the character, so am I." Oh, you want to do the warden? You want to do this? You want to do this? Yeah. In other words, he didn't care, so neither will I. You know, I, I was still. I, I didn't like. His attitude in, in that audition. So that's it. But when when I got there, I found out everybody else had done, you know, their re, their research. They really did because everybody's interested in whether they escaped or not. You know, so that was the big 
everybody was talking about it. Did they escape? Didn't they? Do you believe it? You know? Right. Um, and um, what happened was that um, the pie was small, no, no doubt about it. And, and there, there was no need for him to audition me any more than he did, really. So he was doing his job, whatever he thought that job was. No, no need. It was a small part. But what he saw, and when I watched the movie, two things happened. When I watched the movie, I totally understood my audition. And I didn't until then. What I saw was that Charlie Butts was a, a kind of a Sancho Panza of Clint Eastwood's character. Not really and fully blown, but Clint in the writing needed a foil, somebody he could talk to or say things to or be with. He, he just he was too alone in it. He just needed a friend. And Charlie Butts was like his pet dog. <laughs> and I say that in the best possible way, not in, in a demeaning way at all. That it, it was like, you know, like a hunting dog or something like or No, or just a pal. A pal. So when, and he realized that in, in my attitude, that this guy, Larry Hankin, Don Siegel was seeing that I didn't know what the fuck was going on. And that's what Charlie Butt's character was. He was, a, he was a guy who hung around Clint Eastwood's character for protection. He, he just hung around because he could be beat up or made somebody's girlfriend in a nanosecond. Right. And, and Charlie Butts knew it. And the other thing that, that Don Siegel insisted that I do the part was at one point in the audition, the casting lady said, he can't do Charlie Butts. It was a realization on her part. In, uh, I think it was right before he said, let's, let's read. He said, hold it, hold it. She said, hold it, hold it. He can't do Charlie Butts. And he said, why not? And she said, because Charlie Butts, and it was in, in the script, it was described in the script, how he looked. He said, he's short, he's fat, he has freckles, he has red hair, and he has glasses. And Larry doesn't look anything like that. And Don Siegel read it, you know, read the description of the character. And then he looked at me and he said to her, well, the audience won't have the screenplay. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I thought that was cool. Yeah. That's kind of broke through. And so putting all that together, okay. So that's when I saw the movie, I realized that was what the audition was about. He wanted somebody who didn't know what the fuck was going on. Right. And, and that was, and so I didn't need to do, it turned out, I didn't need to do any research because I was there in front. And I really didn't know what was going on. Now, uh, I, I got, here's the, the, the 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 capper to the whole thing. Okay, I did this the show. I was there for three months, and every once in a while, so and and I was so fascinated with the making of the movie and and who Don Siegel turned out to be, which was an amazing director and a great man, a great man. 
and he treated me like a like a grandson. He was he was like a a grandfather to me. I mean, he just he really did. And I so I went to work every day, even though I I didn't have to go to work. You had to get up at seven thirty every morning to catch the eight o'clock boat. Oh no, I had to get about about six thirty to catch the eight o'clock boat. There's two seven thirty and eight o'clock boats to take all the uh, inmates, you know, the actors who are inmates, two hundred out to uh, out to the island every morning, and then take them out back at night. There were tourist boats that just worked. The morning and the late night shift for the movie, and then during the day they were just tourist boats for the tourists. So I woke up every day, and I went every day. I got on the boat, and I went out, and I got in costume, the shirt, the pants, and the shoes. That was it. And I went on the set, and I just watched them make a movie every day for three months. And Don Siegel would see this, and、uh, that I was there every day. So every day. I would get into a shop every day, or, or you know, like every other day, but a lot more than it was in the script. Because Don Siegel would go, "Hey, Larry, get in the scene," and I'd go, "Why? What am I doing? It doesn't matter what you're doing. I, I need a, I need a body. Get in there." And he would do this every day, or, or whenever he felt like it, whenever it was necessary, whenever he saw he could, because I was there all the time. And I just accepted that as you know he's being nice to me. He's just giving me a little exposure. Maybe you know he likes my acting. I, I wasn't acting. I was just being Larry. I mean that that's why it's so cool. I like that part. I like what I did. And so he would just do this. And then uh, uh, when the movie was all finished, we all dismissed. About two months later, I was called and said.、Um, uh, There's going to be a, a cast and crew screening before the release, so you 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 know the cast and crew are the first ones to see the finished movie. So I said, "Oh man, I want to go see it." So I, I go to see it. It's in you know at Warner Brothers, and it's just the cast. It's just for the cast and crew, producers, and the muckamucks at Warner Brothers to see the movie finished. And so I'm watching the movie, and it starts, and, and then there's credits. And it is directed by you know Alcatraz, directed by Don Siegel, starring Clint Eastwood, and then co-starring Larry Hankin. And I go, what the fuck is that? And I thought, that's not a joke. That's in the movie. Where did that come from? It was Don Siegel. Don Siegel kept on putting me in the movie. You know, Larry, get in the movie. Why? I, I don't know. Just I need a body. And he said,、uh, like in the、um, in the scene in the machine in the machine shop where uh, uh, Robert's flowers、uh, cuts off his hand in the machine shop. Okay, I wasn't in that scene. I wasn't written in that scene or, or many other scenes.、Uh, but it, not only did Don say, Larry, get in there. I go get it. What? I'm not in that scene. Yes, you are. Now you are. Get in the scene. So I said, okay. Well, what am I doing? I just do anything. Just get in there. I need more people in there. So I got in there, and I'm just, you know, I'm patching around with whatever I, looking for something to do. I'm, I'm a convict. I'm in the、uh, machine shop. Okay. And then when, when、um, Robert Flowers, Roberts. That's a weird name. Roberts is an S on the end. Robert's flowers、um, cut his hand off. Now, that, now that's a a. They had two dummies, two dummy hands, 
um, which we were told cost $150,000 for the pair. So be very careful with them. Everybody stay away from them. Don't touch them. They're, you know, they're very expensive, $150,000. We don't, we can't get another one, blah, blah, blah. Very important to the scene. So Robert, so Don Siegel asked Robert Flossett, Roberts to, um, Bob, I'm going to call him Bob's. <laughs> Bob's, um, uh, he said, do you want to cut your hand off? So Bob said, yeah, yeah, sure. It's my hand. Yeah, yeah. Let me, so they gave me the axe. It's a real axe. And they said, okay, just cut it right here. Don Siegel showed him where to cut it. He said, okay, you ready? And then, all right, camera, blah, blah, blah. Okay, and action, Roberts. Bob's. A Robert, bam, and he cut. And Bob's cut off the tips of three fingers, just. And you, the, the gasp that wasn't gasped of 200 people watching this was amazing. Mm. The, the horror, because everybody knew was $150,000. They only have two. Roberts, Bob's just blew about $75,000 right there. Um, and everybody was shocked, but nobody, I mean, they got, they, you know, you were expecting a, <gasps> yeah, but they, they all held it in. There was, there was just, and everybody's dumbfounded. I mean, stiff, frozen. They just, nobody moved. And then, and then you just see sadness just descend and uh don siegel walks over looks at the dam and rob robert's flossum flossum flowers just he was i mean you could see the look on his face you can imagine he, he felt awful man right he was just standing he had to he just he didn't know what to do. He wanted to run and hide, obviously. And he had this axe in his hand. And Don Siegel just said very loud, he says, okay, we lost that one. We got one more left. Who wants to do that? Who wants to cut the hand of the second one? And nobody volunteered. No, I can imagine they didn't. And then Clint Eastwood said, okay, I'll do it. So Clint Eastwood all of a sudden became Clint Eastwood. And he, he said, uh, and he goes up to Robert Roberts and he goes, uh, and he, he puts his hand out, you know, to, to get the ax. And he said, do you mind? And Robert says, no, no, no. And he just gave it to, you know, like, yeah, take it, take it. And he take it. And uh, Clint goes over to the, the second one. The, the crew puts it down where it was supposed to be and then and, you know and they had to clean up the blood i mean the the fingers bled i mean that's how good it was when they cut off the fingers the fingers bled they had to clean up the mess make it all new okay so he says all right and then clint the the clint felt the pressure because he was very excited he was hyper all of a sudden i mean i've never seen him hyper right. but he was for that moment and he goes, okay, everybody. And he was telling everybody, shut up, you know, keep quiet now. This is really important. Uh, uh, you know, we only got this one left. The camera, and he was, he was almost like yelling, but he wasn't. But he was very loud. And he says, camera, are you ready? Is this in focus? We only got one shot. You know, he's amazing. 
you know, just going on and on. And Don Siegel just backed off, man, and just left him alone. Wow. And then, and then he goes and he raises it. He's okay, ready? On three, here we go. Uh, and action. One, two, three. Wham! Perfect. And then Don Siegel just said, okay, moving on. And nobody, and that was in the first two weeks, and nobody ever said anything right after that moment about it. They just, and I thought it was the greatest group move ever. That nobody mentioned it to Robert's Blossom, nobody nodded to him, nobody gave him a pat on the back or said, and they just went on, just keep moving on. And that was a lesson of, of life for me that I go, that's how it's done, man. Yeah. That's how it's done. You fuck up horribly. And everybody there wasn't thinking about what just happened. Everybody there said, solve it right now and let's move on. Right. Boom. That's professionalism. That's, I mean, and it was just right in my face. I was right there. I've, I've kept that story, you know, uh, yeah, I, that's a great lesson for me. I, I hope it was, a, and I'm sure it was, a, and I'm sure that maybe it wasn't a great lesson because they had done that lesson many, many times. I mean, that's how movies are made. You just, you fuck up. You solve the problem and move on and don't discuss it and don't, you know, you discuss it with your wife at home, you know, whatever. But we're making a movie here and you can't dwell. $75,000. Yeah. $75,000. Fine. Let's get the next one. Get the other $75,000 one. Let Clint do it. Okay. Fine. Boom. And Clint just bam. So he'd been around. <laughs> so anyway, that's, yeah, that's, that's the. You might find this interesting, actually. Um, Hopefully. You mentioned uh, everybody was uh, wondering, you know, if the convicts, the real convicts had escaped and if they had made it across San Francisco Bay. Yeah. Uh, not long after he was captured in Santa Monica, by the way, which I think is probably near you, Whitey Bulger went to prison in Florida. Right. And um, I wrote to him in prison and he wrote me back three pages about his time at Alcatraz. Wow. And he was there during the actual escape. Yeah. Um, and he right. told me from the prisoner's perspective, how it was the morning that the guards went and tried to shake the man, you know, the guy and his head rolled off the, the cot. Right. Um, wow. He's, he is personally convinced, or he told me he was personally convinced that they made it. Um, because about a day after the escape happened, there was word that you know back you know back in that time you could still hotwire a car uh, you, don't, you can't hotwire a car anymore um, but a car was hotwired right and stolen right over on land in in California right you know where they would have where they would have landed where they would have landed first he feels maybe they went to Angel Island first and then yeah went over to um, San Francisco and hotwired a car stole it and the consensus is that they fled and they went to like Brazil or Argentina or something and lived, yeah. out, lived out their days yeah. there. Um, right. Um, that could be because uh, there's some letters that uh, the Anglin brothers' relatives have from uh, South America, from there. Right, right. 
Um, so the conclusion that we came to was different. Uh, we came to the conclusion, and I've talked to several authors, so it's still up in the air because the conclusion that I found was that uh, they couldn't have made it because at the time of the tide that they went out uh, at night, the tide was going out and you can't buck that tide. It's a very small, like an isthmus, uh, the Golden Gate Bridge going over. Uh, so when the tide goes out on the, on the San Francisco Bay, it goes through a very small uh, opening that the San Francisco Bridge goes over. And the speed of the current, you can't buck it. You, you need a motor. To, to, so it, it, once they got into the center of that flow, they would have been shipped out to sea. They found the shredded um, um, raft um, on the outside, the outbound side of the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, it was busted. It, it, the glue had come apart. Uh, but it was washed up on shore on the outside of the bay. So, so I, I believe what you say, and I believe what Whitey Bulger says, uh, but I also believe about the, you know, the current and uh, a, a boat going out said that they saw a body in the water and uh so I, I i don't dismiss what you're saying um i'm just telling you the other the other facts they could have made it i think it's going to be one of those i think it's going to be one of those db cooper situations where we'll just never know y yeah uh so i i'll believe it you know either way if somebody comes up with some fact saying uh yeah it's definitely they died or definitely they escaped um i'll believe it you know it's just uh, the uh, the letters that the um, relatives showed, I saw I saw a picture of the uh, letters, and they they looked real. So I you know I don't know maybe maybe who knows who, yeah, but uh, yeah it's it's like a D what is it D W whatever the guy's name is D B Cooper yeah. oh D B Cooper yeah yeah so uh, those those two I'm sure are. Uh, yeah, you know, never going to be solved. So you've been in um, some really popular series, Laverne and Shirley, Benson, WKRP in Cincinnati, Barney Miller, Eight is Enough, Family Ties. The list seems to go on forever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> usually it was a one or a two episode appearance. Um, yeah. So were those just random auditions to stay working as an actor or did you purposely go after those specific shows because... Of their popularity i to this day never wanted to be an actor ever really ever the money was good in in southern california and that's where i went um and then and so because of my dyslexia i didn't care you know i'll take small parts and uh as far as being in popular movies and sitcoms that's all at the discretion of my agents. They sent me, I just wanted to pay my rent, pay my car payments and pay some food and be, have some money left over to, you know, go out. Uh, th that was all I, I was thinking of. I, I, I thought I'm going to live forever. I'll do this forever. I hate it. 
uh, sometimes I liked it. Sometimes it was even, you know, cool. Like the Alcatraz thing was very cool. I loved, I loved being there. It wasn't like work. It was like, you know, I didn't have many lines. The director was always putting me in scenes. I didn't know I was going to get, you know, co-star billing. I mean, that was like a gift. Right. That wasn't even in the contract. That my my agents didn't even know about that. Uh, mm. But um, you know, that that was the director. Uh, but that was fun, and it got me to San Francisco because uh, that was my old stomping ground. So I got to meet a lot of friends. You know, at, at night when I went home. Uh, you know, went, went on shore, back to shore. So, uh, but but other than that, no, I had no. Uh, I just auditioned what they told me to go to audition for. So that was all. You know, luck of the draw, just getting jobs. And so I guess I would say the uh, the my agents were the responsible for that, but the, because they only sent me up for high profile sitcoms. But I didn't know that. Right. You know, I, I just want to make money. I'm going to segue off the audition thing, and I have to bring this up because it's one of my favorite shows of all time, Seinfeld. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't know this, but I recently read it, and you can correct me if it's if it's wrong. But I read that you were Larry David's first choice to play Kramer. Yeah. Yeah. And but ultimately, Michael Richards was cast in the role. So I have a couple of questions. Do you know why it went to Michael Richards instead? Uh, he goes high, I go low. It, it's uh, a matter of uh, monetary casting, casting for the monetary effect uh, in sitcoms, where they cast for who they think will become a star or be noticed more. And uh, Michael Richards uh, has uh, more more there there <laughs> uh he he goes high and, and i go uh, i go under like like uh charlie butts i wasn't acting i was just larry in uh, larry hanging out with clint eastwood while they were filming right that was all no acting at all now that's a good actor's choice if you want to do that you do that, and that's an actor's choice. That wasn't an actor's choice. I didn't know how to act. I still don't know how to act. Um, I just go in and I do improv stuff, improv acting, which is not acting. It's totally different. But on screen, it either works or it doesn't. And when it works, that means I get the audition. I pass the audition. They can see me in the part. And when I, I'm not an actor, I don't get the part, and I don't pass the audition, and I don't get the part. But they don't tell you, you know, they don't tell you why they don't cast you. They just cast you. But th that's why. Even Michael Richards. So when Michael, so when they needed a guy to imitate Michael Richards, that's when Michael Richards and Larry David said, "Yeah, get Larry because he can imitate. I look like him. I've worked with Michael. We we are friends. We, we had auditions for many things. We played brothers in the sitcom long before Seinfeld was ever." A twinkle in anybody's eye. We played in sitcoms, so we were always meeting in in auditions, you know, because we were both tall guys and blah blah blah. So, uh, no, Michael and I. And when I saw the show, I, I said, "Oh no, they cast the right guy." I I'm not that broad. Well, I got over under. Michael is broad, and I'm 
subtle. That, that's the difference. And when casting sitcoms, they always go for broad, always. Uh, many directors have said, no, no, bring it up, Larry. We need, we need more energy, and I will, the director says to me, I, I'll bring you down if you're too high, if you're, you're too broad. And that, that I, I, don't, I don't buy that. I don't, if somebody says, you know, just get broader and I'll bring you down. If a director says that to me in the audition, actors, a, a directors have said that to me, I don't, I don't listen to them. Because I don't want to be broad. You know, I'd have to imagine, though, when you're you see Michael Richards, ultimately in the way that he played Kramer. I mean, I think he's a brilliant physical comedian. Yes. Yes. And for you, I mean, that would have to be like watching Chaplin again. Right. Or Buster Keaton. Well, that's what I did Uh, for that. That role, because that was a dare to me. That wasn't an acting job. That was a dare that he was at the height of his popularity, which is why they wrote a guy to imitate him. Uh, he was at the height of his popularity, Michael Richards and, and Kramer, and they needed somebody to imitate Kramer. And he was a, uh, what do you call it? Well, he was a major star at, uh, I guess, CBS or, or, or wherever, NBC, I don't know, whatever, whatever network. He was a big star there. So th- that wasn't even the casting of the Larry David or Michael Richards or the producers of that show. CBS cared who did that show, who did that imitation. Um, so I was sent when I first got the when I was first went to the first audition. I had to audition five times. That's how big a star Michael Richards was that they auditioned people five times. Never in my entire life auditioned that many times uh, for one part. Um, So they sent me, uh, if you remember that scene that I did with the pillows on the couch and I was- Levels. Levels, exactly, (laughs) levels. Well, that was a real sitcom Seinfeld episode where Michael Richards was describing the levels of his couch with the- right things that was real well after i passed the first audition and there was every kind of person in the world there's short fat skinny bald i mean i was so i thought it was a shoo-in for me i'm the only guy who looked like michael at all mm-hmm. so i thought you know for the first audition i just auditioned but then they called me back for a second audition and i thought what the hell that that, that was a gimme man right i was a shoo you know, and they have, and then the third, and then the fourth, and then the fifth. I was getting really drugged, man. So I was starting to get an attitude. The last time I auditioned, they asked me to go out and come in like Kramer, you know, like through the door. I had to do that. So the last time, the fifth time when I went out, Larry David, I didn't know who Larry David was. I didn't know. But there's this guy, this bald guy. It turned out to be Larry David later on, I found out. He, came, he was the only one who kept on saying, go out and come in the door five times each each audition. It was the only thing he said. Everybody else was saying, hey, yeah, we'll do it this way, do it this way. He would just say, go in and come out and go in and come out the door. Go out and come in the door. Five times. On the fifth time, I went out, but I was really angry. I said, this is ridiculous. 
having me audition five times for a part I'm born to do. And he goes, and I, so I went out to the um, secretary. She was there. She's not there all the time. And I said to her, who is the bald guy at the end of the couch who keeps telling me, go out and come in the door like Kramer? <laughs> because I'm going to rip him a new asshole. And she said, no, no, that's Larry David. He owns the show. He writes the show. He's one of the producers. And I said, oh, thank God I asked. Yeah, it's a good thing you did ask. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, because then I went back in and, oh, Larry David? Fine. I'll do anything you say. Sure. Okay. Uh, <laughs> for two reasons. One is I knew I should be doing it. And I knew he was a genius, you know, and I thought, okay, man, uh, this is how you go. Uh, this is how you fly. I'm, I'm with you, man. I just didn't know, but okay. So I did that. And then, um, when I did that, they sent me, uh, I didn't know how to get the, I got it the fifth time, but when I got home, <clears throat> the next day was delivered by a special delivery by a guy uh, that episode the Seinfeld episode where Kramer was describing the levels on his couch and I must have watched that a hundred times his level speech because that was the speech that I had to do and that was the only time uh, besides Barry which is the last thing I ever did those are the only times I ever prepared for any thing because I wasn't an actor. So there's no sense. I didn't know about intent and all that bullshit, which is not bullshit. It's how you do acting, but I'm not an actor. So to me, it's bullshit. I was just being an improv guy and I didn't want to be an actor. So it never occurred to me to, you know, try just, I was making money. I was doing parts that were very short, so I didn't have much to, to learn. And I was getting, you know, $5,000 a day, a week, whatever it was. So I could, you know, make it to the next time I get an audition or a job. But it was, you know, uh, it was about the skin of my teeth. In other words, you get like, even if you get $10,000 for one day's work, that $10,000 may have to last you three months. Oh, yeah, sure. You know, you, know, you don't know when you're going to get another job. So, but the money was just keeping me alive and in, in, in payments, you know, and rent and food. So, you know, I, I had a place to live. And that was all because I at that time, all the way through uh, until maybe the last five years, the last five years was tough. Uh, that uh, I, I was going to live forever. And then all of a sudden, one day you wake up and you go, oh, wait a minute, I'm not going to live forever. I better either learn to be an actor or get out of this business. And I thought, I'm going to get out. So for the last five years, I was looking for ways out. Well, you know, while I was doing these small jobs and auditioning and, and I didn't, didn't go into the, I had no attitude anymore because now I knew what was going on and, and what I wanted and didn't want. Right. And I knew, I, okay, I'm out of here within five years, you know, tomorrow or the latest five years, but I'm now out of here. So when I went to the auditions, no matter what they did, what they said, or I just, okay, fine. You know, whatever you want, no more attitude. There's power in not caring. You bet. 
You, you bet. And that's my, and for the last five years, my go-to was I would fire if they, if something they told me I didn't like that I didn't want to do or in a costume I didn't want to wear for the last five years, I would go, instead of saying, I don't want to wear this, I would say, okay, I'm fired. Okay. I don't care. Um, I'm not going to wear this. And I would just say that like that. No, I'm not going to wear this. Um, and it blew their minds, like the costume people. I'm not going to wear this. You, you got to wear this. No, no, I don't have to wear this. I don't want, I don't want to. I'm not. So one time, um, and it always served, it always served me well. I, I never got in any trouble. I was never fired. They, they either talked it out or I would say, all right, I'll wear it. You know, fine. I don't care. You know, or I would say, no, I don't, I want to wear it. And they would give me something else. And I go, okay, this is fun. You know, let me do it. Um, sometimes I had a producer go through the costumes with me until we both agreed on something. But <clears throat> the best part was John Houston. With John Houston in uh, Annie, that came up. And uh, the costume guy said, uh, this is what you're going to wear. And I was a dog catcher in 1939. And John Houston, during the interview, it was, I didn't have to audition. I just did an interview. Uh, he said, um, you, you know you're doing a dog catcher in 1939. Oh, I had long hair. That's why he was explaining it to me. He said, you're going to have to do it. He said, Larry, do you understand what the part is? And I said, yeah, I'm a dog catcher. Uh, he said, but he said, uh, John Houston said, uh, yeah, but it's 1939. Uh, this is lower Manhattan and, and you're, you're a dog catcher and you're going to have to cut your hair. And then that was the reason he was explaining it to me. He wanted to make sure I knew that this is 1939 and I had my hair down on my shoulders. So he said, you're going to have to get uh, your hair cut off. Do you, you understand that? And I said, yeah, no. I mean, I just wanted to work with John Houston. Right. I mean, by then, it had nothing to do with money, car payments, acting, non-acting. I just wanted to work with John Houston. I didn't care what I had to do. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, I want to shave me bald. That's fine. So I said, yeah, fine. So he said, okay, fine. And, and then, then I, I got the part the next day. And then so when I showed up and he says, this is the costume. And it was a... Um, what do you call it? A, uh, uh, you know what the garage mechanics wear? Those, uh, uh, those overall coveralls. Well, the coveralls, they're, they're blue, right? You know, coveralls. Okay, well, these were dog catchers' coveralls, so it was tan. So, but coveralls. So, but what the costume designer, or well, he was an assistant. Uh, the costume designer wasn't anywhere around. So he was pretending to be the costume designer, you know. Uh, and he said, this is your costume. What he had done was he had washed it, ironed it, and starched it, and folded, and then ironed it again. So it was about, it looked like a platter, a square platter, 15 <laughs> by 15. That was about, you know, three inches thick, but a stiff cloth platter. Mm -hmm. And... I looked at it and he, I said, that's my costume. And he said, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a uniform. I said, I'm not wearing that. 
And, and, I, and I tried to peel it up, you know, like you do with starch. Well, they, people don't do that anymore. When I was a kid, my, my dad used to get his shirt starched. I used to, he let me peel it open. It was like fun. It's like, yeah. Um, so I peeled a sleeve up and, and then I just put it down and I, I gave it back to him. And I said, I'm not wearing that. And he says, yes, you are. And there was like a little argument going on there. No, I'm not. I'm not. It's you. You have to. You have to. And so I said, um, I said, look, I'm a dog catcher in 1939 in lower Manhattan. He said, I, 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 my custom should be filthy. I'm getting, you know what mongrels are in 1939 in lower Manhattan? You know, me capturing them all day long. Right. You know. This has got to be filthy. Be the opposite of clean. Yeah. I didn't know. I just said, well, yes. But I just said to him, it's got to be filthy. You know, and I just emphasized that. And I just stood there with my you know, hands across my chest, you know. And uh, just to see what he would do, because I didn't give a fuck. You know, I, I really did give a fuck. I wanted to work with John Houston. But at that moment, man, it was, I'm fired and I don't care, you know. The power of, you know, not caring. And what he said was cool. He said, all right, we're going to see Mr. Houston. And I said, okay, let's go see Mr. Houston. And I figured he would stick up for me. You know, I'm righteous. He told me, he gave me that little speech about cutting my hair. You realize it's 1939 and you're a dog catcher. I remember that speech. So I'm going to hold him to that. Mm -hmm. you know, so I said, okay. So we go out there, and it had rained the night before, so there was puddles all around. But but those dry places where you go, the sun was out now. But there's puddles all, all around, and you could walk where there was dry spots. But a lot of the grass was, uh, we, we were filming outside, so a lot of the grass was, you know, had puddles in it. But there was John Houston, and he was looking at his rushes. And we go up to him, and he goes, uh, and, he, and he sees us walking. He turned around, he sees us walking towards him, and he knew something was wrong. Because what he said was, um, all right, John, what's what's going on now? You know, so it's kind of like, you know, what's what's the problem? So John comes up to him and he goes, uh, this cost, uh, this actor, he points at me, we're standing there. He's uh, sitting in his director's chair out in the open. And, and he says, this actor, and he points to me, this actor will not put on this costume and he's carrying it in his hand like a platter you know like a flat hand and he's got the, and he's and john houston turns to me and he says uh, is that true larry and i go yes it is really why why won't you put on the costume larry because it has to be filthy I, i'm a I'm a dog catcher and it's 1939 and I'm catching mongrels all day long and the costume has to be filthy. Okay. Uh, John, uh, John Houston says, John, give me the costume. So John hands him the platter. John Houston gets up out of his director chairs and he starts walking away from us. And he's walking onto grass into this puddle. And he's got on these very expensive Italian loafers with a little gold clasp on the, you know, on the top part. Very expensive. I noticed them when I was walking up. I said, wow, man, cool shoes. And he walks into the puddle with these, with these loafers on. And 
I'm thinking, you know, his socks are getting wet and he's not copping to it. That was my first thought. His socks are wet and he's not copping to it. And, and while he's standing there in this puddle, he's ripping open, you know, like peeling open yeah. this uniform into its flatness, you know, and he's shaking out the flatness and he's got it all flattened out and he drops it in the puddle and he walks all over. In his, in his shoes, and his shoes, you know, above, they're above the soles. They're like, oh, you know, not up to his ankles, but he's, he's fucking with his shoes, man. Yeah. And he's yeah. stepping all over this costume. And then he steps aside and he picks it up with his, you know, thumb and his, fore, his forefinger, you know, and he picks it up away from him, like he's a little drip on him. And he walks it back and he hands it to John. And he says, John, I want you to dry this costume out and put it on this actor. Thank you, John. Thank you, Larry. And he sits down and turns back to his rushes. <laughs> it was so great. So that's in the, in the movie of Annie, the costume that I'm wearing in the finished film is the costume that John Houston dropped in the puddle, walked all over, and John had to dry out and put on me. That's amazing. Yeah, so, uh, you know, by, by then I had, you know, I was on my way out, but that was a great, you know, stance of mine. I know you have to uh, you have to get going. I just want to make sure I got this in. Sure. Because you mentioned Brian Cranston a little while ago. You played a junkyard owner named Joe on Breaking Bad, um, another phenomenal series. I mean, it, the writing is yeah, oh, quite great. amazing. Um, and you reprised your role in the film El Camino, which right. follows Jesse after the series ended. Right. Um, so... What's it like to be part of that universe? Because to me, Breaking Bad is a show that could easily spin off in several directions. Well, I'm I'm I I don't have a I'm I'm very socially unaware. I'm I'm not a I'm not a social person. Uh, first of all, I'm shy. Uh, I'm I'm shy. And second of all, I have dyslexia, so um, that, that kind of makes me sometimes naive. In other words, I don't get it. I don't get what's going on. Uh, but when I do get it, I, I get it, and then I got it, and it's okay, you know, cool. Uh, I, I, I get it pretty much solidly, but until I get it, I don't get it. Mm -hmm. So uh, on that show, um, you had to get it, and I didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so I, I'm not a part of that group. Uh, I, I'm not, uh, I mean, sooner or later, I'm going to say something that's going to be wrong. So in all my conversations with all of those people in that universe, that Breaking Bad universe, I pretty much... <clears throat> said something wrong to everybody on the set at some point. Really? Yeah. I mean, because I have no, I have no, um, I have no walls. I have very few walls to hide behind. Um, what, what, what you see is what you get. And so uh, I don't, uh, I, I don't edit my speech. I just say what I think. No filter. No, no filter. No, no filter. So if we're even Brian Cranston and a couple of the other people, I remember 
you know, carrying on a conversation and then saying something and then boom, end the conversation. So I'm so used to it. I mean, I've done it all my life. So I'm so used to it that it's just, oh, right. There you go. That's another one there. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's what I, so I register it. Oh, I just said something I shouldn't have said. Uh, okay, cool. Uh, and you just go on with my day. Uh, so uh I, I kind of expect it maybe that's helping it live you know kind of in, instead of trying to cool it i mean I, I do sometimes try to cool it but it never works it, it, to this day of, uh let me see how many days ago tuesday monday monday about four days ago it happened you know just i i said blah 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 we we're carrying on a conversation and i just said something that was not 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 cool for for this conversation and i go oh and you see <laughs> they tune out like it's just uh, the vibes change yeah and okay cool so so no i got along when i needed to get along and then you know and i just hanging out and blah 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 like uh, i'll give you an ex a quick example of, of w w what i mean okay i, I went to a big party this is a while back. Went to a big uh, Hollywood party. That's why I don't go to Hollywood parties much. But I go to ho a big Hollywood party, and there's all these stars there. And and I was invited. I had an invitation because I was in one of the movies that, you know, was throwing the party. So I got an invitation. I went with a friend who said, oh, man, can I go with you? And I go, oh, yeah, come on. So we go, and I had just written a screenplay. So I said, you know, here's a chance to see all the stars and, you know, maybe approach one or two, you know, get them to either sign on as an actor or maybe to get to direct or maybe some of them have uh, become producers. So um, maybe I get them to produce, you know, so it's a, a schmooze, you know. Uh, okay, so we go and blah, blah, blah. And, and here's all the, and there's this big star, I forgot his name, but okay, we, we got, and I said, oh, that would be, that guy would be great. I know he produces movies. I know this big star produces movies. You know, I'm the level of a Brian Cranston, but not Brian Cranston. Okay. So I go over to him and he goes, no, what are you going to do? My friend says to me, he says, I'm going to go ask him if he's going to, if he wants to produce my, my screenplay. I mean, so and everybody who I uh, kind of went up to, I mean, just, just as a, a party, they knew me. They, in other words, because of my roles. Oh, yeah, I saw you in that. Yeah, hi, Larry. How you doing? So I said, you know, and he said, well, but, but are you just going to go, you know, blindly up to him you know, with no introduction? I said, well, yeah, maybe he knows me. You know, maybe he knows me and then I'll take it from there. You know, so it seemed like a, a normal thing to do, uh, how to sell a screenplay. So I go up to this big star. And he's sitting down with a bunch of people, you know, just carrying on a conversation. And I go, oh, hi, could I just, you know, talk to you for a second? And he goes, oh, hi. Hey, I know you. Uh, yeah, you're an actor. Uh, what, what's your name? Larry. Yeah, Larry. I, I like your, yeah, I saw, saw one of your movies. Yeah. So, yeah, what do you want? So I said, well, I just, uh, I wrote this screenplay and I was wondering, you know, I know you produce movies, but, uh, and, and right, right there, you, you just see his face just change, you know. Right. And he goes, well, not here, man. Hey, I'm, I, this is, you know, and he's trying to be very nice. But he's saying, no, this is a party. I don't want to talk about business here. 
And I go, oh, okay, uh, uh, sorry. And I just walked away. And my friend said, what, what the fuck did you just do, man? I said, well, I tried to sell my screenplay to the guy. He says, yeah, but you don't do it at a party like this, man. That's like uncool, man. Now, this guy, this my friend, he was a, a, a lowball producer. You know, he directs B and C movies. You know, but he, but he knows the, how to schmooze. You know, he knows how to... And he knew uh, right away that what I was about to do was wrong, but he wanted to see if I could pull it off because he's, I was speaking like, yeah, I can. So he said, oh, okay, go ahead. And of course, I said the wrong thing. I did the wrong thing. Well, that's what I'm talking about, about my naivete or shyness or non-social awareness. Uh, I should have known better. Everybody at the party knew. It don't do that. And, you know, they, they want I And I've had it done to me, I mean, spoken to me several times. I went to somebody's house party where there was a lot of stars, you know, and I had books that I had written that I was handing out to people. You know, that, 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 small books, you know, little, little books, but, but I, that I had written. So I brought about 10 of them and I was just like, Handing him, hey, you know, hi. And it was like somebody knew who I was. Oh, hi, Larry. I've seen you and blah, blah, blah. I'd say, yeah, I, I just wrote this book here. And they go, oh, well. And they didn't know what to do with it. You know, it was, maybe it was too big for their pocket. And and the uh, the host of the place came over to me. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm handing out my books. No, don't do that. And uh, I never got invited to his house again. So, I mean, it's, it's those kinds of things. I, I'm naive, you know, and, and when I finally get it, okay, don't hand out stuff at parties. I got it. I got it. But until I got it, uh, I didn't get it. I appreciate your time today, Larry. Um, this has been great. And I will let everybody know where to find you. I know you have LarryHankin.com. Yeah, yeah, LarryHankin.com. I'm, I'm also, I got a book coming out, um, a, re a really good book. A lot of the, the stories that I told you are sort of grabs from the book. Uh, they, they go into more depth in the, in the book. Uh, but it's really funny and it's really cool. It's coming out in October and it's called That Guy. Okay. Because everybody says, hey, you're that guy. Right. You're that guy in that thing. Uh, so yeah, so just check that out. I'll try to get it out by October. Thanks again, Larry. I appreciate it. Thank you. This has been Gaslights. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll tune in next time for another interesting story.